everybody. Scott Bowden and Brian Last right along ringside and ready to go with another big week of Kentucky Fried Wrestling. And Brian, I'm going to have to steal your thunder here today and announce the guest myself because it is an honor to have a man who, wow, traveled over to Memphis, Tennessee in 1975 with his partner, Bill Superstar Dundee. Well, and we I, are- <laughs> you, you may want to stop right there, Scott. I want to remind what? you that I'm on the East Coast yeah. and you're on the West Coast. That's true. And the guest that you seem to be indicating that will be on the show this week is in Australia. So between those three different time zones, there has been some scheduling issues. What? As of right now. What? So we have a fill-in guest. We have a last minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Let's all right. Let's just uh we're gonna let's let's go to let's go to a break. Ladies and gentlemen, just hold right there. We'll be right back after this message. Eat, drink, and be merry. Eat, drink, and be merry. Eat, drink, and be merry at the great new Dairy Queen. Now more and more, Dairy Queen. Serve fine brazier foods. Brazier burgers. Cook to order. The two double cheeseburgers were extra cheese only, nothing else on them. We figured you'd have out already by the time we got up here. <laughs> Didn't know what. Didn't know whether to fix it or not. We wouldn't have ordered it if we didn't want it fixed. Is this a comedy show? Does this look like a comedy bus to you? You know what? Hey! Don't you like me to go? Come to that window and cut you. Here we go. Hey! We ordered it now. We sat here for 15 minutes for nothing. We ordered food and they won't even start fixing it. Oh, welcome back to Kentucky Fried Wrestling. And I'm proud to say that fresh off the heels of having legendary meteorologist and iconic sidekick to the late, great Lance Russell for all those wonderful Saturday mornings of my childhood. Our guest today is another Memphis wrestling personality who is very special to me. Uh, Brian, I don't know if you recall, but last summer when we were talking over, uh, you know, uh, the format of the show and what Kentucky Fried Wrestling, the podcast might look like, you asked me for a top five dream list uh, of guests. And I think I rattled off Jerry Jarrett, Jerry Lawler, uh, Bill Dundee, Austin Idol, and easily one of the greatest wrestling managers of all time, talking about Jimmy Hart. Um and you were like, well, yeah, but, uh, you know, uh, Hart, you might have to go through his management company. Maybe he wouldn't be so good. And uh, what, give, me, give, me, give me some more names. And uh, I think I rattled off Doug Gilbert, Tommy Rich, Downtown Bruno, George Barnes, Randy Hales, and Jim Cornette. And 
Well, I'm proud to say that after losing uh, a, a guest spot that we thought we had booked with George Barnes, ladies and gentlemen, it is my distinct honor to introduce to you today the former speechwriter for Washington, D.C. Mayor Marion Barry, who today owes the prestigious honor of being President Trump's least favorite wrestling personality, the Louisville slugger himself, the legendary manager of the Midnight Express, Mr. James E. Cornette. You know, if I had the sound effect, Banana Nose Bowden, if I had the sound effect <laughs> of a door slamming, I would play it right now before I walked out of this program, this outlaw mud show program you got going on here, that a couple of burglars breaking into a house while people are gone for the day, gainfully employed or listening to, I would slam the door and walk out after that introduction that you gave me. You, you made it sound like that I was about your 17th choice when in reality, and you know this, and not only do you know it, but that little sidekick, it looks like Howdy Doody the yours, Brian Last. It, 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 the only reason people know who Brian Last is is because he's my sidekick, too. And I got a much bigger side than you do. But you would have these people believe that I was your 17th choice. But in actuality and reality, Banana Nose Bowden, every single one of those names and about 14 more turned you down and, did, and refused to appear on this program. This this offshoot of 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 of, of easy doze. This they, they refused to appear on this program, and I, out of the goodness of my heart, because I'm a compassionate, I'm more compassionate than you realize, Scott Bowden. Yes, yes. Out of the compassion clearly. of my heart, when Brian Last came to me, going, Scott Bowden is driving me crazy. He is about to have a nervous breakdown. He was sniveling, crying, not just crying because a man can cry, but when you snivel and cry, you've lost your man card, Scott Bowden. He, you were sniveling, crying on the phone or the Skype or however you fucking young people communicate, talking about, well, buddy, you'll be on my show. Nobody will be. And, and Brian said, what can I do to get this motherfucker off my back? And I said, Brian, if you want me to, I will, I will take time out of my busy schedule and I'll appear on and save your show for you because I'm a safe bet. Every time when all the big ones come to me, when they need their show saved, when, when the, when the ratings are going down, when the interest is going down, they know that Jim Cornette and the cult of Cornette listeners that follow me wherever I go, sometimes even in the shower. One time in the emergency room at the hospital, they followed me. Well, we won't go into that now, but they know that I'll, I'll bring, I'll bring the attention. Brian last knows it. Well, I, I, my God, he's, he's in front of millions of people on the YouTubes and the Twitters and the tweeters and the, and the podcasts with me every week. He realizes the power of the cult. He's right along there with it. And so he has done you a service here to get you off his back to get me on the program and 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 basically you have just you have just acted like I was your 17th choice. I am I I hope you are suitably chastened <laughs> because I am indeed offended, wounded down to my core. <laughs> well, yeah, accept my apologies. I am prone to various <laughs> outbursts at times. Uh, say that. <laughs> what? Say that word. What? What? That's a horrible thing to say. What? What? Everybody in the was Did you think you'd be comfortable with it? Oh, for heaven's sake. That's why do you think I don't leave the house? <laughs> now, we, we, do we have to start adversarially? Oh, and, and last hits me with the thing right before we go. I, Brian, are you still there? Have you gone to pick up some swami poop rather than listen to this? No, no, I was going over the list of other guests that we should have booked today instead of you. Uh, Uptown Karen, <laughs> Mickey Poole's yes. nephew. I mean, yes. I have a whole list here of people that would have been better. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> she'd do it i bet you she'd do it 
Well, yeah, I, I used to have a little thing with Uptown Karen. She oh, was right. God, I don't need to hear about this. <laughs> you have a thing with any living thing makes me ill to my stomach. It gives me the sour belches. Actually, actually, I'll say this: the only the only female wrestling personality who I ever kissed or ever had, even remotely got romantic with was Cora Combs. <laughs> Uh, in 1995. Uh, Did you say uh, 1965? Uh, <laughs> no, oh, she, was, she, was, she was in Memphis under a hood as Lady Satan, uh, wrestling her daughter. <laughs> and uh, and I, was, I, I, I had to just... Her day now, you know. Cora was a looker in 1952. I know. And for some reason, they put me with her. I, I don't I don't understand. I was supposed to be like the Germantown frat boy, and here I am managing Lady Satan. I don't know. Uh, but uh, she takes a spill outside the ring, and she gets counted out, and I help her up, and I'm carrying her to the back, and she's like, kiss me. And I go, what? And before I have a chance to answer, <laughs> she locks lips with me and, and tries to stick her tongue down my throat. <sighs> so once again... <laughs> You and your rookie year, you get Cora Combs. I got Sherry Martell. Well, I so, think you, got the, you got the better end of the deal there. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And All right. Like, well, I, I, I didn't mean to insult your program, but I was I was going to mention also that last gave me the thing right before we, we go on the air. Well, I'm going to lay out of this one. And let you guys talk, because people hear us talk all the time, but they want to hear you guys talk, me and you, Scott. Banana. Well, and here we here but, we, here but we see, we're actually, also- he just doesn't want to get any on him. We're off to a roaring start here. <laughs> oh, for heavens! Well, I've, I now I will in the in the spirit of which this has been intended, I will participate in your program. But well, I thought your introduction was lackluster. Well, you know, it's, it's like my father used to tell me. You know, you you shoot for the moon and and you hit the roof, uh, or something like that. But I, uh, <laughs> but you know, I, I kind of feel I kind of feel like Lance Russell that day that Ric Flair. Uh, showed up at the WMC TV5 studio in August of 1982 uh, out of the kindness of his heart. Well, actually, uh, I, I don't, I, I can be compared to Flair, but I don't know if we'd compare you to Lance. <laughs> well, I got the maybe, nose. Maybe, maybe it's like, it like the day that, that the WWE stars first started showing up with, and you were Corey Macklin. Okay. <laughs> hey. Hey, hey, that's ridiculous. Get that stuff out of here. Get that stuff out of here. Every, every announcer that ever grew up watching Memphis wrestling subconscious, Randy Hales did it. He, when he did announcing, he was Lance. He was Jonesboro Lance. Corey Macklin was, I don't know what kind of Lance, but he was, he was Lance in there. And, and, and I I would venture to guess probably some radio, radio personalities and, and local TV people had a little bit of Lance in them. Yes. yes. Uh, Randy Hale's trying to be Lance was was sort of amusing. I uh, I remember even my sister and I, we were like, gosh, I, I think it was like 10 the first time I heard Randy Hale's on commentary. And I was like, wow, who, who made this decision? decision <laughs> well, no, no if Randy actually went, uh, and a lot of people do not know this. I will tell you a Randy Hales fact that you do not know. He went to college over there at, at Arizona or Arizona, Arkansas, whatever the fuck. I don't know what the name of the school was. It was Arkansas state. Okay. Well, there you go. The other ASU. He did a, uh, and he uh, went school for communications and television and things like that. He acts no, he actually did oh, a program. He did his own program, 
interviewing Lance Russell and talking about wrestling and showing highlights of wrestling for like his graduation thing or whatever the fuck. I don't know. I never went to no book learning place. And and gave me a tape of it in, in like 1980 or 81 or whatever the fuck it was. I still I have that somewhere. It was very good. It was almost like it's almost as good as as Nick's TV. He was doing about the same time in Nashville. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, actually, yeah, I, I I found that footage recently, and I kind of recut it, and I kind of styled it like a like a Jerry Lawler show intro. But it was Randy Hills, but it was just clips of me like whipping him with a belt and things like that. <laughs> and then it gives way to this uh, to this interview that he did with Lance Russell. And I don't think so. So you're you that was no surprise to you. I did not no. know Randy Hales' fact that you didn't know how why uh, have you studied randy hales's life so closely well <laughs> i knew him at the time right it was contemporaneous information but you're digging very deep into that man's life and career is there some well, issue a, between I, the two of you we had i think it was like the third runner-up in the wrestling observer feud of the year back in back in 95 well, that was the year that Vince lost six million bucks so a <laughs> lot of shit happened in 95 yeah a lot of things happened that you can't explain <laughs> 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 well let's wait a minute let's let's go back to or let's, let's go back to a, let's go back to something we yeah just, let's go like let's yeah. go back to the beginning let's do this let's start let's start this whole thing over <laughs> now wait a minute let's go let's go back to the uh, i believe it was the summer of 72 that's that's when you first got bitten by the wrestling bug and around about that period of time actually because since i didn't know that it would it would be with me for the rest of my life i didn't just write down suddenly oh i just found wrestling so it was around uh, I, I, I gauge it by uh, the talent that I first, because so many guys came through Tennessee. But when I first started watching Bruiser's show from Indianapolis, he'd change talent like twice a year. <laughs> the same fucking 14 guys would be there for, actually eight of them were there forever. Right. So I, you know, I got in on like him and Blackjack Mulligan and, and Heenan and the Blackjacks and the blah, blah, blah. So around about that, that time period. Okay. And, and I, if I recall correctly, I think everybody kind of remembers their, like, for me, it was like kind of the summer of 77 where I really first became a super fan with Lawler and Dundee and that epic view that they had. And, uh, uh, but before that, the, the first, you know, my, what my dad used to, uh, to turn off cartoons and put it over to channel 13 WHBQ and, you know, my Television. Now, yeah, exactly. And, uh, the Mongolian stomper was the first guy who kind of caught my eye, but for you, it wasn't like Jack Briscoe or, or Lawler, any of those guys. It was ring technician, roughhouse Fargo. <laughs> yes. But, well, see, here's the thing. And, and I, I figure also because if you go back and look, they used Roughhouse a lot in '73 for what, and and they were drawing some big houses too. Oh yeah. Um. So the thing was, I started watching, and not only I'm watching Bruisers guys, but I'm watching the the local the Tennessee guys in Louisville now. And, you know, I'm starting to pick up on, and it was always mentioned, even when he wasn't on the show. Jackie Fargo is the greatest wrestler of all time, and is the you know god of the world. And, uh, you know, so he was uh, presented as a level above anyway. And then finally, as 73 or so, when he did the angles where, you know, they got him down or whatever the fuck, and he had to spring roughhouse out of the fucking nut house. <laughs> and it, no, he, he doesn't live there. He just sweeps up there, right. time, you know, and all that shit. <laughs> and I, I still wasn't able to go live. So I was like, fuck, I can't see roughhouse. 
And finally, you know, it was like a year later, I talked my mom into taking me to see the Battle Royal and nobody was slain in the streets of downtown Louisville. So she kept taking me back. And finally, I get to see Rough House and he's fucking, I get to see all the Fargos. And it just, Bruiser was the guy in Indianapolis. And, you know, and, and boy, he was cool. And, and they protected him to the point where he only wrestled on TV maybe once every couple of months. He did promos for the main events. That's pretty much what he did in the, in the, in the locker room set. But you could actually see Fargo and these guys fucking, whether it's the tapes from the Coliseum or the studio shit, they're doing some wild ass shit. So I wanted to see that even more, even though Bruiser's guys were still spoken to the big stars. Um, but you know, at, at any rate, uh, rough house was the first one that, that captivates me as just chaos. And then once I started, then Lawler, the summer of 74 and even Lawler and white and bass before that, because they had had the run with the Fargo's and they, you know, set the Coliseum attendance record, et cetera. So really Lawler, white, Sam bass, rough house, that whole fucking era is what, uh, put me over the edge. Now, the first time I saw Rough House, they had called on, uh, well, first of all, Lawler had called on Fargo to help get revenge on the Blonde Bombers and Sergeant Danny Davis. Yes. And then the following week, they came back with, uh, and they brought in Rough House because they, they'd they gotten, the, they, you know, Fargo says, I underestimated you punks. Because I, I, I think they had uh, poured some stuff in Fargo's <laughs> eyes or something like that and stole yeah, the victory. Yeah, out, out of the, uh, the uh, Sergeant Davis's canteen, it yes. was alcohol, alcohol yeah. rubbing alcohol they poured in his eyes. Yes. Yes. Well, okay, uh, was now that well, then was that the uh, was that the the night of the WFI convention uh, that you were there with, or was yeah. that? Yeah. Uh, you know what? That that was around that time, I think. Because, because yeah, because the Freebirds were working also, and that was kind of the reason why the Freebirds never really ascended to the main events. But on this night, uh, I guess the the they kind of shifted the order around because I think Fargo and Roughhouse were supposed to go on beforehand. Uh, but it ended up Lawler and Dundee against the the Freebirds closed the show, and that was the first night that the Freebirds came out to uh, their answer. Yes, that the that was that was the the WFI convention, and it was the three on two handicap match where Danny was wrestling also, right. and they tore up the, the the big oak table at ringside and far. They had a Fargo match, which is what yeah. Christine Jarrett used to say when when he'd just throw all the furniture at ringside into the ring and just bash everybody <laughs> with it. Right. And Roughhouse is going crazy and fucking over it, shaking hands with Lance while he's trying to do commentary and ringing the ship's bell. Um, that was not only the night that the first night Freebirds came out to the music, but also remember they put the Fargo, which truthfully and honestly, the Fargos and the Bombers was the draw that night. Yeah. But they put that match on after uh Lawler and Dundee and the Freebirds, because I think didn't they go 30 minutes Broadway that night? Possibly. But the main event that they put on last, which is why you don't remember it, because you probably left like half the house did, was Ron Bass and Pete Austin against uh uh Terry and Eddie Boulder. Yeah. No, no, no. I remember but I remember that was listed as the main event, but I, I sort of remember it has the the when it got to the night of the card, somehow that was shifted around. And it I was, thought that was the, I, well, it, I don't know. Maybe, I, maybe it was another night because I think at one time they tried to put Hulk and Eddie on beefcake, whatever on yeah. after everybody in the main event spot. It may have been the week before then. Okay. And the people just got up and kind of slowly started filtering yeah. out like, fuck, we can't follow this, you know? Right. So at any rate, they was not well received and all, all due respect to Ron Bass, who probably had to be looking for what the fuck am I doing here? 
And I can't, I can't, I'll always, I'll always remember Roughhouse. You know, he was slugging everybody, uh, including Jackie. You know, he was like, he would get so carried away that he was nailing, you know, he's nailing the bombers, he's nailing uh, Davis, he nails the referee, and then Fargo's trying to, he nails Fargo, <laughs> he nails Jackie, knocks him on his ass. And he's just like a cyclone, just going through the place. And uh, I just thought, man, this guy—you know—I thought Jackie Fargo was 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 the toughest guy on the planet. This guy's even crazier, and and could probably take J- Jackie in a street fight. Yeah, well, and and that's the thing. Everybody bought it, and it's it was it's they made the preposterous somehow posterous. Right. Because because the the faith they had in Jackie Fargo and and even though he did some ha ha in his matches also, they remembered the hard ways and the uh, double juices and the, you know, just the the reality of his 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 early 70s Memphis tapes look like those old fight scene fight movies. Yeah. If we're, if we're, you know, he's letting people punch him in the face and and, and probably pickling a few of them. But because they had such faith in Jackie, he he portrayed with his promos Roughhouse as being a fucking lunatic. And even though look at him, everybody sold for him and it worked. And yeah. and you couldn't do it today because then you know it, it's that's all spoiled. Among the many things you can't do today. But it, and and you couldn't bring it back every week. And that's why Roughhouse was great for holidays and the summer program when he'd come over and visit Jackie from the Carolinas. But once or twice a year, well, Jerry Jarrett said nobody per capita, and he employed every big name for 40 years, drew more money for him than Roughhouse Fargo did. Right, right. Because it was always like if Lawler was in a jam, he didn't need the world's greatest wrestler, he needed the world's greatest fighter. He would, you know, and you couldn't just call him. You had to go and go go, go to Nashville and sit <laughs> on Jackie's couch. <laughs> I think he had the same couch for about 20 years and he was like, you know, pitching him the deal. And then Parker's like, I know you need me, baby. I know why you're here. And then uh, the following week, you know, uh, it wouldn't quite go to plan. And so Fargo, he's like, you know, who do I turn to? I turn to the nut. I'm going to go check him out at the nut house in Bolivar and rough house Fargo is coming. And so it was always was like, man, Lawler turns to Fargo. Fargo has to go to Roughhouse. So man, Roughhouse just missed me the baddest guy. I, and the planet, little did I know, he was mild-mannered referee Sonny Fargo in the Carolinas. And I always wondered what Mid-Atlantic fans were thinking, you know, because I know there were tape traders then. Uh, you know, what the hell were they thinking when they got the Oh, well, there, there was one in, in the late 70s. Uh, there, uh, like Wrestling Guide had some Gene Gordon pictures from the Carolinas. And there's Sonny Fargo referee in one of the matches, and he's it's a plain shot of his face, and and the caption was referee Sonny Fargo admonishes so and so about using roughhouse tactics, <laughs> kind of like a wink. Nice. I got that around here somewhere, but that and roughhouse. The first time I well, I got to see him a couple times in at the gardens in '74, but the first big deal was when when they reunited all three of them in '75, uh, Jackie, Don, and Roughhouse. And and went around. They they did a couple of different programs with a couple of different heel teams for about two or three weeks in the territory until for some reason Don fucking left. Who knows? Uh, but it was it was supposed to be Chris Colt and Mike Boyette and poor Billy Anderson when he was Bill Colt. But it ended up being Dundee because Boyette got fired by the time that it made it to Louisville. And so for two or three weeks in a row, and Don's ripped. He's like fifty years old. And he looks like he's in competition bodybuilding shape. A year beforehand and a year later, he'd weigh 300 pounds. He was only like five, seven. <laughs> um, 
you know, and just, it was just chaos and they fucking, they, that's what they sold out two or three weeks or in a row in the Coliseum in Memphis underneath the Stomper and Magnificent Zulu. Oh, wow. So the Southern title main event, because the Fargos were reunited for the first time in 10 years, Zulu gets credit for three Memphis sellouts. But at any rate. Well, yeah, it's uh, funny. We, we talked about that on, on, uh, on our show a few weeks ago, because we were, we were kind of scratching our heads because, you know, Zulu couldn't cut a promo to save his lights. And Lance Russell tried. I mean, I have uh, this, uh, you know, rare audio clip from, from WHVQ and Lance is just, man, he's just trying. And then finally Z- the promo ends and Zulu kind of just walks off and he's screaming. He's not going to get away from me. Talking about the bear hug. He's like, he's not going to get away from me. He's not going to get away from me. And he just walks off and the, you hear the fans kind of like awkwardly laugh, <laughs> you know, because, because Lance goes and there he goes. <laughs> no, uh, all, all three of those big houses with Stomper and Zulu and Stomper did, you know, draw some big money and, and I could see where they went to the well with Zulu once, but they it, point is uh, all three of those were, uh, main events because of the Southern title, but that was the three Fargo reunion matches. And if everybody looks a little bit deeper, but that, can you imagine how Dundee felt because Barnes has just left like uh, a, a, a two months earlier and all of a sudden, cause the guy fuck Boyette fucks up or whatever. He's in the middle of this tag team with Chris fucking Colt, uh, who was an could work. who could work his ass off, but yeah. That was Dundee's first time to be in a main event that sold out Coliseum as, uh, you know, out out of his team. So he's working his ass off and fucking Colts insane. And it was just, you know, those uh, that was a a big money deal. And, And I think I figured it up for one of my columns or one of the books that we did. And the Tennessee territory was drawn like 50,000 paid admissions a week for a couple or three weeks off of that thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, th- and that's exactly what we did. Like we, uh, as I went a little bit deeper into the, into the tapes that, that I acquired from Chip Namius, a uh, guy who just sat there in front of the television with an audio cassette recorder taping the shows, uh, you know, the, the Zulu uh, stomper deal. They, you know, they had the promos for that. And they actually had a very memorable promo with uh, Bearcat Wright. And he was crying. He was literally, <laughs> he was like literally bawling that they were making, you know, I searched the world to find this man and you're making him get back in with this Zulu. He's nothing but a street fighter from the ghetto. <laughs> oh. I'm, I'm, I'm sure Zulu had seen a few streets, but I don't know whether he had fought on any of them. No. no who, who whacked him, Brian? If, if Do you remember who whacked him in the locker room at one point? Did some, oh no, no, you know what it was? He's the one he whacked Frankie Lane. That's right out, out of I believe That's in right. California. Frankie Lane made some racial remark and Zulu hit him over head with a tire iron, left a, a soft spot in his fucking skull. Jeez. Um, so maybe Zulu was a street fighter for yeah, maybe. Damn, he couldn't fucking street wrestle. <laughs> he was the shittiest street wrestler we ever saw. But then but then, you know, we go a little bit deeper into the promos and we found this great promo from Jackie where he's reuniting uh, uh re, you know, calling in Donnie, and Donnie does like a really kind of you know, soft spoken, uh, but determined promo, and then you know, Fargo's a little bit more fired up. And I was like, ah, that's what was drawing the houses. Uh, certainly, certainly now that certainly doesn't take away from the Stomper. I think you and I both voted for Stomper, uh, Archie Goldie and the uh, Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, he was a main event guy everywhere he went. He went to many different places. He was on top in Florida. He was on top in Georgia. He ruled Knoxville. He was on top in Drew Money in Memphis. He was Calgary's Stampede Wrestling's all-time fucking heel. Uh, he, he did well in Texas. He worked for 
Uh, my gosh. Uh, well, Kansas City, <laughs> but that's not his fault. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you know, but I mean, he was everywhere and, and always a main event guy and the look and the body and the fucking just, uh, you know, he, I don't see how you cannot consider him a hall of famer, but that's just me. Yeah. Dave Brown and I were talking about uh, Archie last week and I said, you know, he would just stand there straight ahead as, as Bearcat, who I think is just incredibly under, underrated as a promo guy. Uh, he would just look, stare at you straight through the television. It was almost like he was seeing right through your soul, you know, like he was burning yeah. a hole right through you and just, man, just so intense. Because uh, nobody, nobody looks like that. So yeah. especially when he had the, I always liked the, the shaved head better because he just looks so demonic that way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, he was an intimidating. There's even Johnny Randolph, the uh, DJ here in Louisville that used to do, they'd have the DJ that was the ring announcer do commentary when they just send Mike Shields with the camera and, you know, no announcer. And so he's doing the commentary on him and Bob Stomper and Bob Armstrong. And it is, it's a double juice and it's chaos and it's count out and the bells ringing and Armstrong's run him off and Stomper's got the boot in his hand. And this fan throws beer on Stomper and he goes after him and you see the cops scuffle to get the guy and everything. And Johnny Randolph's like, I wouldn't throw beer on that Stomper for anything. He scares me, you know, cause he, he did. It was yeah. frightening. Yeah. Not so much with the headgear. I never got the headgear thing, but I don't think they ever, I don't think they ever used that in Memphis. I think that was maybe yeah, well, in Atlanta or Midtown. No, during the, the Robert Fuller reign, Stomper was in full headgear in uh, early 79, but not was, when he drew money in 70, 75. Was that after they, they did the deal where they did, did they, was that the deal with Joe Ledoux bust the, uh, the cinder block over his head or, is yes, it, or like, with, the, with the sledgehammer? Yes. yes um, yeah. I think because well, it, it, at first, and of course now Bo James is going to write in with copious notes, <laughs> but basically they were trying to show how uh, fucking uh, tough Stomper was. And so that Gorgeous George would, would they'd put the cinder block on his head with a towel on, you know, and everything, but it's, it's a cinder block and Gorgeous George would hit the fucking block with the sledgehammer and break it over Stomper's head. And somehow or another, the, the challenge was thrown out because Joe LaDuke was a baby face. That, uh, that can Joe LaDuke do that? And goddamn, so somehow he gets wrapped up into it and he's sitting there and they put the block on LaDuke's head and Stomper gets the fucking <laughs> right, uh, okay. sledgehammer and not only breaks the sledgehammer over LaDuke's head, but pretty much it was one of those two for ones where he actually hit LaDuke in the head with the sledgehammer. <laughs> and fucking and, you, and the tape still exists Bo James just tweeted it out not long ago but it fucked Leduc up and he went to hospital for a few days and then apparently sh he shot his own angle or they shot the, whatever the fuck he comes out the following Friday night with his axe out of the crowd in Knoxville at the Coliseum <laughs> Chase and, and Stomper and George apparently according to what Bo James said thought that he legitimately had come to kill him because he was nuts and he was and they sold it with such fear and ran away and everything and he did the blood oath and all that shit people are fuck and they started doing sellout business for oh, which man. for which robert fuller got a lot of credit maybe you ought to ask that in a nice way brian over on another one of your shows over here on the network um actually i'll say this Ron Fuller will be on the Super Podcast in the next several weeks. We just recorded it, and one of the things that we talked about was the Joe LaDuke Mongolian Stomper angle. Hey, did, there did, you go. Did I give an overview of it somewhat succinctly and, and or correctly? 
somewhat succinctly and somewhat <laughs> correct. <laughs> Emphasis on somewhat. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's just the way I heard it. But anyway. I, I think they're, yeah, more accurately than succinctly, maybe. <laughs> well, all right. Well, hey, at least I can say succinctly. So I'll say it as succinctly as I can. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> And that's, you know, but they used to do that. I think they did. That was an angle. This, the sledgehammer angle. If you had a strong man, mighty Igor, I believe, did the uh, cinder block thing for a while over the head. And, you, you know, different guys would do shit like LeDuc had the thing where he did the tug of war where five yeah. guys on either side and try to pull his his uh, bear hug apart with the leather straps. And, yeah, he, you know, he, he would stop the he would stop the bus. Right. Remember, he would put his legs up against the yes. Or, no, or... no, it wasn't a fucking bus now. No, wait a minute. No, no, no. It was Jimmy, 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 it was Jimmy Hart in a van. Yeah, it, it was. That yeah, was... He, he pulled a bus he pulled in a Montreal, bus. I believe. Yeah. But, yeah. but no. Yeah. But see, the, the fucking deal. I did that with Bruiser Bedlam. And all that stuff. See, the deal is what you do is you find one of those, not an asphalt parking lot, but with the slick concrete. It's like especially they have when they you pull into the, the service bay at the thing. But slick concrete. And you spray some of that goddamn 10w40 or what wd40 or whatever the fuck it is down on that and and then you accelerate slowly with a good stout guy they can do about a thousand pound bench press and you can get the wheels spinning and smoking right right but i wouldn't want to be one to test it out no know? but no. leduc did it just fine well let's let's go back to the first time you saw fargo i believe that was on uh may 31st 1974 with uh, Ricky Gibson and Jerry Jarrett, and they had Fargo in the corner against, I would have given anything to have seen these two guys together, Jerry Lawler and Luthez. Yes. Uh, and, it, it, and it's so bizarre that at that time period, just somehow Luthez is working as a heel and he's in the same matches with Roughhouse Fargo. And, <laughs> and, and that's why, to be honest, Roughhouse was somewhat restrained, as I recall. That I was, you know, that's the first time I'd seen him live after I'd heard him talking about, and, and it was just, it was great to see him live. But, and he did plenty of shit with Lawler, but I don't remember a lot of Thez Roughhouse interaction, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, he may have he may have toned it down just a little bit. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but that that is you know, and, and Thez did not often wrestle purely as a heel. He'd be the heel champion or the you know heelish guy in a in a contest. But just to, but it just had happened that way. But I'll tell you what, the previous year, talk about a fucking angle you couldn't get away with these days. I remember this plane is my first time. I remember Luthez registering on me as a, wow, I want to see more of this fucking guy it was the year before when Ron and Terry Garvin and Jimmy Garvin, it, maybe it was Duke Myers. Maybe it was Terry Garvin and Duke Myers, but it was, it was a couple of the Garvins and uh, Thez was a baby face and he was, uh, it was one of Nick's TVs. I don't believe it was the Memphis tape. But they showed it in Louisville somewhere or another. It was Thez and whoever against the Garvin team. And Jimmy Garvin's the, the manager. Then he weighed about 160 pounds, and he's wearing the bell bottoms and got the bleach blonde hair, and he's like 18 years old. And at some point in the finish, that whatever the fuck happens, Thez gets his leg tied in the bottom two ropes, right? The old deal where you get your ankle caught in the ring, and you fall outside yeah. the ring, so his leg, and he's upside down. And his leg is, is ankles tied in the bottom two ropes and he's hanging there helpless. 
and Terry Garvin comes over and instead of just oh. kicking him in the ribs or, or putting boots to his head or do anything else, he gives him a couple of kicks right in the ass. Just flat-footed, boom, right in the ass. <laughs> so there he's literally kicking Luthez's ass on television. And somehow they get him run off and everything, and then they come back after the fucking break or whatever. And there's Thez at the desk, and he's saying, I'm, "I'm paraphrasing now. I'll get to the point where it's a quote, but I paraphrase when he says something to the effect of, I've wrestled all over the world for however many years, the toughest men and the best men. I've been world champion six times. And here's the quote: I'll be damned." If I'm going to let some fag kick me in the ass on TV. <laughs> <laughs> and I was oh, like, yeah, say what you want, but those guys are fucking mad, right? Well, I think with this, it was probably a shoot. I mean, he, uh, he, it, it, he delivered it with a lot of emotion. It registered to me. That's 40, uh, 44, 45 years ago, probably in a couple of months. And I still remember seeing it plain as day on my black and white television. But God, and there, and once again, Terry Garvin, for the benefit of those with, without flash photography, you don't know what at the time Terry Garvin was wearing a negligee to the ring. He had the golden, uh, uh, gorgeous George curls and his uh, tights. I, once again, I had black and white television, but I've, I've seen the pictures. His tights were either like lime green with pink boots or whatever the fuck. And occasionally there'd be a feather boa. <laughs> and and then and then there's Ronnie Garvin, his alleged brother, who's just a couple of years away from being the one man gang in Knoxville and the hands of stone and the most feared fucking shooter, stretcher, and serious fuck in the world. And and he and and Jimmy's there in the middle of him. It was fucking classic. Uh, um, all right, let's, let's no, we know about- that Thez did not like uh, folks of the uh, opposite sexual persuasion to be kicking him repeatedly in the ass on television. I think the only thing more insulting would have been had maybe Cora Combs grabbed him and laid one on him. <laughs> maybe <laughs> that probably just would have. I bet you that probably happened around 1953. <laughs> well, in 1953, that would have probably been a cool thing, but not 1995. <laughs> 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 but any- Oh. Anyway, uh, and, then, and then Cora was like, "Are you going to Louisville tomorrow? <laughs> what hotel are you staying?" Yeah, I've, I've got a motorcycle. It's sorry. I'm oh full. my goodness! Uh, let's talk about your your first card at the Coliseum, uh, April twenty fourth, nineteen seventy seven. Uh, Why do you know so much about me too? Are you? Hey, man, you know. Score I, of- I, I've read your books. You and Mark James have put out a, a couple of books, the Tuesday night at the gardens, which is just a incredible uh, history lesson. I agree with uh, that. Oh my God. How do you know so much about me? All I've done is publish 20 books and do 50. Yeah. Well, it just seems that he knows an inordinate amount about other men's personal and private lives and careers. <laughs> I just, well, I, don't, you know, you know, I, I, I mentioned before that uh, you have had a lot of time on your hands, though. Well, that's true. That uh, that you were a big influence on me because even before you got into now, managing, don't blame me for any of that. Well, yeah, we see how my career turned out, but uh, <laughs> but anyway. Uh, you know, I would see you shooting ringside, uh, pictures of ringside. And and then I saw your a- actual picture in the wrestling news uh, that would be for sale at the arenas. And I was like, ah, Jim Cornetti. Uh, I don't know if and, I thought and, you were. And, and, and hopefully you you still don't have those pictures that you obviously clipped out of those magazines to save in a scrapbook. Hopefully they're not covering the walls of your bedroom. 
and and the ceiling also it just you know fucking right up next to each other with no room to breathe or anything just constant uh, I, I had to let those go after after i got married my wife my wife wasn't having you're married yeah <laughs> actually god to to a british woman and the frick gosh man for well they the are first, more tolerant the, well the first five years i went over there uh they would be like oh Haley, uh Haley says that you used to be in professional wrestling. I said, yeah, you know, for a while there. And they're like, oh, like, sort of like Big Daddy in Giant Ace Tex. And I was like, yeah, sort, sort of like that. Um, and I'm, and, and in no way am I trying to. Scotty. Yeah, I'm not trying to undermine uh, Big Daddy's chances of getting into the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame at all. But uh, yeah, it's not, not exactly one of my, one of my influences. Uh, but you certainly were because. It, you know, I saw your picture and I read your articles. And uh, now that night that you were there, you were there as a fan, correct? You, you weren't shooting photos. No, I did. I did shoot, but I well both um, because I obviously the way that I first found out what had happened when when Jarrett split uh, from Goulas and formed his own company. Well, several things happened at the same time. The, the first one was. That Saturday morning when we got the previous week's Memphis TV and there's no Lance Russell and Dave Brown. Mm-hmm. Holy fuck, what's, what the fuck has happened? Second was when I looked in Sunday uh, Sunday's paper for the ad for the Louisville card at the gardens that week. All of a sudden it said Jarrett Wrestling Enterprises. Mm-hmm. And uh, or, 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 or was it Louisville Wrestling Enterprises? Because the point is they changed the name in the, in the ad. And eventually it was Louisville Wrestling Enterprises. But um, so then that Tuesday, I asked Miss Jarrett, I said, I see Jerry's name in the deal where it wasn't in the deal before. And and she's like, he's gone on his own. (laughs) Wow. And and about that same time or the day after, then I got my package in the mail from the girl in Memphis that used to mail me all the newspaper clippings and the results from the Memphis cards. And I start getting all the clippings of the the Memphis the stuff that was in the newspaper in Memphis. Yeah. Split the full page article and the you know constant updates. Battle for Memphis. Uh, me- limelight shines on Memphis wrestling situation. Blah blah blah. And it was big news there. Yeah, yeah. And so as I was reading that, as, within a couple of weeks, when the the worm uh, quickly turned in Jerry's favor. Uh, that's when I got the clipping about, uh, they're going to plan for the return of the Mid-South Coliseum is going to be a big international, you know, parade of champions, super card. And I think they used every single one of those and probably some more adjectives also. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, I saw immediately the next Tuesday night, I asked, uh, Tini if, if we could get tickets to, you know, oh, and yes, we'll definitely get you tickets. And I said, I'll shoot for the magazine and blah, blah, blah. And when we got down there. She had gotten us front row. The front row were the $25 tickets. I'd never seen a fucking $25 Whoa. wrestling ticket before, right? Was that, in the, was that in the golden circle? Yes, front row. <laughs> I was on – okay, you know how the the uh, the aisle way that the uh, baby faces would come out and the aisle nice. way that the heels would – well, it, okay, camera side where the hard camera always was. Yeah. I was – we were on the front row directly to the left on the on the caddy corner section. Okay, is this you and Bolin? No, me and my mom and this oh. this girl and her mother from Louisville had always went to the matches that my mom said, well, I don't want just us two to go. So they offered to go. So Because once again, I do not have a driver's license. 
Right. Because right. yes. So basically, she didn't want to drive all the way down there. So the other girl's mother had exchanged for tickets so she could see Bill Dundee and Fawn and Moon over him. Uh, would help with the driving because we went down and back. So you know that's. Uh, but, but that was my first, uh, so we had front row tickets, but I was up at ringside shooting stuff, which I got some great pictures, especially dusty fucking body slamming Dennis Condry on the concrete from that night. And some with Lawler and Briscoe and blah, blah, blah. And, and Harley and Rocky Johnson. But that was, uh, and they, I think that was the highest prices that they had until the bash co-promotions in 85, 86. I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah, the September thirtieth, nineteen eighty five card with uh, with Flair and Lawler on top, which I think was the first hundred thousand dollar gate uh, for Jarrett. I, th- I think so. Either yeah. that, or, either that, or Lexington. Because I saw I saw these great pictures. I, I became friends with Mike Shields on Facebook, and uh, boy, you know, he sent me a link to you know all these fantastic pictures from that night. And I was like, oh man, are are these yours? And he's like, no, they, they, those were taken by Eddie Gilbert. Yeah, well, actually, uh, I I think Mike was probably running video that night, wasn't he? Well, he said he filmed the entire card in sixteen millimeter that night, and or, I was no, like, well, video or, or film one of the, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, he was running yeah. a TV camera. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. no, Ed, Eddie was there at rings. That's the first night I met Eddie in person. As a matter of fact, now that I think about it, Eddie was there. He was shooting on one side, and I was shooting on the other side. Okay. And okay. they actually had also there was another guy. What was his name that was shooting for the program that? Um, for action ringside at that point in time that Jim Blake had started. Oh, I don't know uh, that guy's name. He, I think he worked for the Memphis paper also. Larry Coyne? I, I'm not sure. Anyway, there was three of us there. It was, fuck, that was a goddamn covered like the goddamn, <laughs> uh, you know, United Nations Summit. Right. That was a big deal back then. And and the thing is, at those prices, I I, wonder, I don't know what the house was that night. But normally the Memphis ticket prices at the time were $5 ringside, $4 reserved, and $3 general admission. And they went with $25 front row, $15 ringside, and like 8 and 5 or whatever. Yeah. And 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 even for a card that size, for that particular reason, they only did like about eight or 9,000 people. But it was goddamn – it was a mega card, and from what I understand, Jared had Eddie Graham in the back. Yeah. And, and, you know, all the dignitaries, all the top NWA, I don't, was Barnett there? I wonder, I never even thought, Uh, you know what? He might've been, he may very well have been. Yeah. So and Vern Gagne was, was there, was he? No, that was the next year. Fuck. Well, I'm, I'm confusing my super cards. That was, that was when, after the NWA helped him out all that. Right. I know. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that, well, because that was a and that was a Sunday night show, which sort of illustrates the problem that they were having uh, getting Monday night dates on on yeah. the NWA World Champion. I think Harley appeared in Memphis four times in in seventy seven, and one of them was a Tuesday night show, which I don't know what that how that affected Louisville. Uh, and then uh, uh, the rest of the shows were Sunday nights, and they, and they but they all drew well, you know. I, I know. Well, that, I, I think that I think that time he was in Louisville also, and they ran Louisville on the on the Monday, if I recall right, in that March April time okay. period there. But you you know what? Here's the fucking thing: if you go back and look at it, Nick Goulas must have been a suck up. Uh, he trumpeted NWA on every program and added on his interview desk and said it in every promo. But look and see. In the 60s and early 70s, how many goddamn times they got the NWA champion? It more than you would think. 
Yeah. Go back and, and look, look at Mark James's books where he has the week to week cards. Um, especially Dory was there much more. Dory was here in Louisville one time. It, it, it like the first several months that Jared had opened it up. And I never knew that. I always thought that Briscoe in 74 was the first NWA title match, but Dory was here one time, you know, in, in 1970. So, but they were getting the NWA champion and it was on Mondays. And this sometimes even before they went to, from the Ellis auditorium to the mid South Coliseum. So it was a smaller building it was still on fucking Monday, but Nick could somehow, maybe, who knows, maybe it was for Roy Welch. <clears throat> but that was when the, they could bring the NWA champion in the entire territory for a, a week, and, you know, they had so many towns. Right, right. Yeah, I, I was sort of wondering what what the shift was there, like why suddenly they were having trouble. But, I, but maybe that was the problem, that they couldn't guarantee him like a set number of dates in a row. Well, it, but also I think – Two things. The business got bigger in the 70s. And secondly, I think Nick, for the prestige of uh, because he was always about that NWA title and et cetera, and just his NWA membership. And then that was why it was so cruel poetically when it did him absolutely no good. The only one that would help him out was the Sheik. The rest of them just stood back and was like, Jared's going to kill you, man. Um, But he, I think he would probably spend the money to get the champion where I think Jared was like i i don't know that this guy's going to draw me what i need to pay him because well but 10 percent of the house give or take depending on you know between the champion and the nwa yeah i think i think jared explained his philosophy on it that it didn't make any sense to him just to bring the world champion in eight times a year uh with no build-up you know, and in Memphis, it was always there was always like a, a, you know, when when Lawler turned heel in 79, it was all over the title shot, you know, for Bachwinkle, uh, the, the problem with Ian Dundee. And there was always like, you know, or the, the quest well, for the title. He, he was up. able. Yeah, he was able to make a personal issue out of the program with the guys that he had full time so that he just had to bring the champion in once. And that's probably the best way to because, I mean, I. I, I the people in the Carolinas or in Florida territory got spoiled seeing the world champion all the fucking time, right? The level of, of work when the talent was so high in those territories and et cetera, blah, blah, blah. And they had a lot of big arenas. But it is the, the quest for the title in 74 that made Lawler, they only needed Briscoe the once. And, the, yeah. and then they brought him into Louisville and for a return and et cetera, et cetera. But Jarrett did make the investment of top names to come in the, from the magazine top 10 list and put Lawler over in some fashion, Sheik, Bobo Brazil, Wrestling 2, Dick the Bruiser, et cetera, et cetera. But it was to build a commodity that he had and was going to control in his territory. And re- and then he only needed Briscoe to have the actual title match. Yeah. And then he could uh, continue to play off of the, the program and he had Lawler. So yeah. I think that's why he, and once again, the, when Harley had the uh, two matches with Lawler in December of 76, they go an hour Broadway because Lawler had a couple of shots against Briscoe and he'd had a couple of shots against uh, uh, Terry Funk and had not got it yet. It, and they knew well, they were going to do an angle the following week. So they go an hour Broadway and then bring it back and they in, inject Jimmy Valiant in to put the heap back on Valiant and Lawler. And then they didn't need Harley again for another fucking year. 
Right. Well, it did at that point. Then they were off and running with a red hot Lawler Valiant feud. Yeah. You know, to, to kick off the new year. I mean, I think uh, the January we were talking about this with Dave Brown. Uh, you know, January first was the uh, Orange Bowl, and it was like one of the highest rated college football games ever. And it said while the majority of the city was at home watching the Orange Bowl, ten thousand wrestling fans yeah. were back in the Mid South Coliseum to see Lawler and uh, and Valiant go at it. And man, they were off and running for about three months. But it all centered around that fact. In part, not only did Valiant attack all over the bottle and, and you know, Lawler sort of perfectly, and it was, I think they had him sit out a week. You know, in those days, if, if, you, if Lawler was out for a week, you know, that was like a big deal. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> well, and, and then here's the thing. The, a couple of days later, he's in Louisville, and he was scheduled to wrestle. <clears throat> and instead, they announced that he had been attacked by Valiant, and I think he uh, – sat in a corner with Dundee and somebody or whatever the fuck, but he didn't have a shirt on. And so I see the stitches in his chest and his arm right. and he's got a, he's got a, you know, a, a bandage on his head, but you can see the stitches from the cut on his chest and his arm in another place. And I said, what the fuck? He's like, I'm oh, that fucking valiant, you know, cause I mean, I'm 16, right? Sure. Uh, but people could see that. And, and yeah. they believe, and then when he was on TV with it they, and they show it, okay, I'm going to do something about this motherfucker. Yeah. And of course, 10,000 people want to see what's going to happen. I th- and I, th- I think they even had channel five do a piece on it where they were actually, they were, they were actually like trying to get in Lawler's hospital room and the doctors were yeah. like closing the door or something like that, <laughs> because they would have that, you know, they would get that cooperation from, from the local newscast sometimes, which is always fantastic. Uh, but, uh, and even, even when they brought in funk for the first time, they Lawler had to do the whole thing all over again. They did, you know, they did a deal where, you know, he had to beat Harley race, uh, Briscoe, I think Briscoe, yeah. Uh, he lost. He dropped the Southern title to Briscoe, had to win it back, uh, and then had to beat Dory Funk Jr. I think in a Texas Death Match before he could even get a shot at the belt, which made it seem all the more uh, prestigious. Like you know, not anybody just gets a, a world title shot. You gotta you gotta go out there and earn it. Uh, so they would get all this. And when you think about it. it, yeah, when you think about it, in pretty much every territory, it's just that some territories got the champion more than others. Like I said, whether it be Carolinas or Florida or whatever, but. Um, Every territory was able to do that. They were able to build their guys, their guy around, you know, going for the championship and and qualifying for a world title match and getting the champion here in his home territory where he'll have the people behind him and blah, blah, blah. And that's what the lure of the championship and occasional appearances by the champion kept all those guys fresh and having something to fight for. If, if the champion was around all the time, which is the case now, these days, he's, mm. you know, and they've even got one for each television program, <laughs> then it's, eh. and like right. I said, with Bruiser, he, you know, he wrestled once every two months on TV. And then sometimes it was a rerun you'd seen before, but he was out there selling his main event match, you know, for three minutes per program. So, uh, so in seventy, you briefly mentioned uh, the following year in seventy eight. After receiving all this help from the from the NWA, uh, Jarrett uh, he keeps his NWA membership, but switches the the titles to all AWA recognition, and suddenly he's bringing in Dick Bockwinkel as champion. And you shot that card. Uh, what was your? I, I don't know. It'd be hard for you to 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 judge it since you were uh, not there as a fan. But uh, what did you think of that match? And did you instantly see the chemistry between Law? Because to me, I I I just I consider Nick to be Lawler's best opponent. Maybe because I have him on a pedestal because he didn't come in 
you know, that often. Uh, probably Lawler and Dundee had the best bouts. It's hard to say. Lawler and Funk had some fantastic matches. Uh, what did you think of that first Lawler-Bachwinkle match? Well, no, immediately, it was the best world title match I'd seen Jerry in. Wow. Uh, because Jerry, Lawler and Race... Uh, the hour Broadway, I've got the unedited tape and it is slow in spots. <laughs> and, and, and I think Harley had Lawler working more of, you know, whether it was Lawler wanting to do it or whether Harley was just calling it that way, it was more of the standard local babyface challenges, heel champion match. Mm-hmm. Whereas I did not only did Bachwinkle give Lawler more range to do his shit, but they just clicked together. I th- the best Lawler and Terry Funk matches were not the ones that they had for the title. It was the ones later on when they were, you know, when they were having their programs and they could both really do their shit and Terry didn't have to worry about being the champion. And, you know, <laughs> I don't even think at, at that time, the NWA wanted their champion bleeding profusely with an eye patch on stabbing <laughs> motherfucker with a goddamn table leg. I don't know. <laughs> but anyways, I, I think Lawler's best matches for the world title were with Bachwinkle. Definitely. Yeah. Regardless yeah. of which, whichever world title it may be. And let's not bring superstar Billy Graham in the equation. Let's just say that he, he at the time and, and, and Jerry did not click with a in-ring classic. No, no. Uh, and, and he was brought in, I guess, to give credibility to the, to the CWA world championship, which uh, Jerry, Jerry explained to me that, that the plan all along was to, to unify that with the AWA championship and that he was working on a deal with Vern and that's when Lawler broke his leg. And, uh, but you know, little did Jarrett know that uh, I guess in the back of Vern's mind, he was thinking about putting the belt back on himself <laughs> yeah. in, in the summer of 19. So that really would have hurt those plans. I can't imagine a Lawler Vern Gagne feud, uh, really well, capturing I- the, I, I think it, local fans. When, when they first, when it first came up, remember Pat McGinnis? Yeah. Yeah. He came in with the okay. trophy. Yes. <laughs> it was not an auspicious beginning. And then, Uh-oh. and this was in 1979 during a kind of a dark period of uh, business wise. And then it was Thunderbolt Patterson for a second. And then it went away for a while. And then when they brought it back, with with Graham at least he obviously was a mega name and was somebody that if you beat him you you know you beat somebody but he was had been the hottest guy in the business two years before that but at that time Billy for all the reasons he has mentioned in his book and what he'd gone he was doing personal appearances in tights in those matches and it was eh. And so, you know, it was a way to get it on Lawler, and then he breaks his legs. And now Vern's top contender, Billy Robinson, ends up with it. That's fucking hilarious. Right. And, um, and, I, th- and I think Vern – Now, that would, have been a, that would have been a unification match, all right. Yeah. Well, they actually did bring in uh, Nick to challenge uh, Robinson. No, I, mean, I mean Robinson and Vern Gagne. Oh, yeah. Well, Vern said – I think Vern has always said that the reason he didn't put the AWA title on, on Robinson was like, well, what do I do if he doesn't want to give it back? Which is – oh, really? Well, I – <laughs> Well, which is, sort, which is sort of, I guess, what happened in a way with Robinson, with with uh, Robinson and Jarrett, because Jarrett was like, you know, Billy, this isn't working. We need to make a change. And he's like, I don't think so. Well, uh, I, no, but now think about this. Robinson worked and made six figures a year back in the early 70s, working for Vern Gagne for like, what, almost 10 years straight. But 
I got. I, I may anger Greg Gagne with this. Hopefully, he's not a listener of your program. I, <laughs> I don't I think. It. I don't think that Vern ever wanted to put that belt on Billy Robinson because he'd have to put him over clean in a wrestling match because Robinson wasn't a heel. And I just don't. Because think about it. For ten years, who who got the belt? Bockwinkle, a heel. Yeah. And one time, the crusher. He put to put it on the crusher. The crusher was of uh, of uh, uh, the hottest guy in the fucking territory for fifteen years, and he had the belt for like three months one time or whatever. So, Doctor X didn't didn't uh, Dick Hutton have a run with it? Uh, not Dick Hutton. Dick Byer. You Dick uh, Byers. That's right. Three lashes with a wet Memphis Coliseum ring rope. Um, but it, it, it and that was in the mid sixties. Fuck, Bockwinkle's the only guy that got it away from him for fifteen fucking years. So. Yeah. I just and, and Bockwinkle's promos were just just absolutely amazing and uh, man I just I just thought he was the the entire package. Yeah, and 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 plus, like you said, he and Lawler clicked. So you know that was and 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 we got to see more of those matches, and they were all different because that's another thing. You know, to be honest, when a couple times I saw Lawler and Harley, it was a lot of the same stuff. Right. But Nick Nick was so versatile, and he just had that different style. So yeah. Yeah, and that was also the first time I'd, I'd, I'd ever seen Lawler pull the strap, go to punch somebody, and uh, Bockwinkle blocks it and then knocks Lawler back on his ass because Lawler <laughs> had just had just switched deal. And I was like, ooh, wow, never seen that before. Yeah, that guy is the world champion. Um, but, of course, there are, you know, my, my first card at the Coliseum, uh, the memory of that is, has been forever tarnished now, uh, thanks to you and Mark James. Uh <laughs> What? Was, now what's was, happened? Was, on January 29th, 1979, I was eight years old. Uh, the first card I'd ever seen. And when I was, a, I was, before I was able to go to the matches, I was, you know, I was a big reader and I was wanting to find every magazine I could get my hands on. And, oh God, I know where and, you're going. And, 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 and Mil Mascaraz was, was all over, you know, Bill after had a, apparently a big man crush on Mil Mascaraz. And I just assumed that he was like a part wrestler, part superhero who could do all this incredible stuff. And it built up in my mind. So Austin Idol brings him in as a heel. Fargo and Lawler, you know, again, this is a stretcher match. So Lawler doesn't need the world's greatest wrestler. He needs the world's greatest fighter. Brings in Fargo. You know, they they actually, they pop the crowd. They get the crowd up to about, uh, I think, 6,700. And now there's some controversy. You've you know you you claimed right from the get go once I described the match you go there is no way that was Aaron Rodriguez under the <laughs> well no but here's what I I said I didn't say Aaron Rodriguez because I, I said there's no way that was the real Mil Mascaras when I okay. because he never appeared in any other town in the territory he never appeared in Memphis ever again before or since it just it was it, it wasn't advertised as a matter of fact. If you go back and look at Mark James's book, it was advertised as Lawler and Idol in a stretcher match or whatever, and they did an angle on TV to involve Fargo and Mil Moscaris. And wasn't this right after Brian last helped me with this that they had done the Idol where Idol angle where Idol was supposedly a lucha star under a mask and broke the plaque over Lawler's head, right? No, that was after. No, this. that was was that years. after the. And yeah. that son of a bitch, it was 81. Okay, well, yeah. in that case, then it then somehow or another, I have no idea why the fuck or how the fuck that Mil Moscaris would enter into this equation. <laughs> maybe if, if goddamn Idol was just drunk one night reading a wrestling magazine and said, why don't he be my partner? I don't fucking know. But I always thought there's no way. But then I heard the story from Jerry Jarrett. 
And then I heard the story. I, Lawler's told a story, I believe. Uh, no, Idol told a story. No, Lawler. Because, uh, yeah, Lawler. I asked Lawler about it. He goes, he don't remember. No, he doesn't remember, which is not surprising. <laughs> yeah, no, he can't remember anything he's ever. We we have to remind him every. Me and Boland constantly remind him things he's done. But anyway, um, so I always thought it was shit. But then Jerry Jared told a story. No, because I'd known Francisco Flores, and he sat down. And then Idols told the story. Yeah, so it was the guy, and he took the mask. And so then we accepted it. It was, and I was like, what the fuck? And then now Mark James has found the Athletic Commission uh, uh, paperwork filed with the state, and there's no Aaron Rodriguez. Aaron Rodriguez on the on the lineup of wrestlers, but there is a and Francisco Flores was not only the name of the one of the great Mexican wrestling promoters, but it was also a name of kind of an underneath heel that was working for Nick Goulas at the time. Right. And that Francisco, who also worked as, as El Toro, I think, at one point. Um, it, it fucking... Uh, it, so so what, do you, what, what, do you, what are you saying here? What are you but saying? Then, but then <laughs> some wise ass, some wise ass posited the theory that well, would they have gotten Mil Mascaras a fucking wrestling license just to come in one time, or would they have just have used somebody else? And who's going to know the difference in Nashville at the State Athletic Commission if it's you know whatever the fuck? So there's still a chance. But yeah, yeah. On behalf of said uh, wise ass, I just want to say hello. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it makes sense. Flores picks him up at the airport. <laughs> you know, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Nick. Well, the th- you know, the thing about it was when I got the, when I got the answer from from Jared, you know, it was a casual conversation. We were it was we talked for like two hours in Charlotte at, at one of the NWA Legends Fans Fest. And throughout the deal, I'm, you know, Jerry, uh, you know, he would get s- some of the dates mixed up. Uh, but, you know, the stories were still were still there. The, the you know, the ideas were still there. His passion for the business was was still there. But he was just a little because to them it was all like a blur. You know, he, well, they, yeah, well, th- think about this. Yeah. Yeah. He literally did that for 30 years straight. Right. Right. And and, and weekly. Yeah. So that is how many that's fifteen hundred weeks of television. That's fifteen hundred times at least seven live events. Yeah. Uh the, always the, the, always on the road. Yeah. Yeah. Always, so uh, so I can understand and, and plus we're nerds and fans, so we yes, like exactly. the shit that they did better than they did. So <laughs> exactly. we pay more attention. But, but one I'm, would think that one well, could remember <laughs> out of that's it's like fucking suddenly goddamn Antonio Inoki coming to main event to fucking college. <laughs> it does a stretcher job. It does a stretcher <laughs> job, but you never see the fucking guy again. I don't, you know, it just didn't, well, didn't pass the uh, sniff test to me. But what, but what I asked, what I asked Jared about the story, suddenly it got incredibly detailed. You know, it was like, well, I was friends with Salvador Luteroth and his and his wife Maria. He invited me to. I said Francisco Flores, who was another promoter, but it it was Salvador Luteroth he was friends with, and Francisco Flores was the job guy who had took the name of the famous promoter. I'm sorry. And and Luteroth was also used in the uh, Idol angle because uh, they had gotten the wire from Salvador Luteroff that El, <laughs> that, that, uh, is it El Di- that's the only Mexican wrestling promoter that they knew the name of. <laughs> but, but he goes, he goes, I was invited out to his estate in Mexico city. I spent the night. I said, uh, he goes for dinner. We had enchiladas. 
<laughs> and I was like, I was like, chicken or beef? He's like, I had the chicken. He had the beef. Uh, they he had a lovely he had a lovely maid uh, named uh, uh, you know Francesca Francesca, and uh, I met his children. He named all the children. <laughs> And eventually, he lined up this favor to get Mil Mascaris to appear in Memphis. And I was like, okay, that's that sounds logical. <laughs> but it was the most detailed portion of the entire conversation. And so Jerry Jarrett is either ultra smooth <laughs> and totally pulled the wool over my eyes, or um, you know, I I don't know. Maybe maybe he was just pulling a pulling a fast one on me. But it was certainly oh, now given God. Memphis Memphis's history now is not too good if you look at all the mass superstars, uh, all the Mister Wrestlings yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. who came through. So oh, I, I brought the I brought the Super Destroyer in from Atlanta in my early weeks in the business to get even with Lawler for making fun of me, and it, it but it wasn't Scott Irwin; it was Jerry Novak, the Bounty Hunter. <laughs> Right, wait a minute now. I thought that that was I thought that that was really super D from uh, that, that was that was an 82. That was yeah. Jerry Novak. Well, I, I don't know, because actually I wasn't there the, that week in Memphis, but I'll guarantee you the fucking next week in goddamn Louisville or wherever the fuck it was, Jerry. <laughs> oh, right. Well, I know Novak came in as as uh, the mass superstar once. Yeah. Uh, well, and, and see, that's the th because. I didn't make the Memphis show because of they had just said, go out and cut a promo that you're going to pay the fucking guy. But I wasn't necessarily booked in his corner. And then the following week, oh, okay. off that also, but I, blah, blah, blah. Now, did I, you supposedly bring in Von Roska as well? Uh, because he came in the following week. It was like a, a two-week period where, for some reason, I think I was traveling with my soccer team, and uh, maybe the VCR didn't work. But I, uh, I No, I, I remember he, he came in. I I was not responsible for that because I after I'd started TV, I had to take uh, not two weeks of TV, but a week of TV and two weeks off because I had a hernia surgery. And uh, yeah, and I had to I'll get this done and over with before I start getting the shit kicked out of me. <laughs> um, so I had to miss a week there, and I, that's when I think Von Raschke was was there because I didn't see him that time. And he's one of those guys. I wish I wish he had had an, like an extended run with Lawler. You know, there are guys like uh, if if the real Bill Eadie had come in, I wish that he and Lawler would have had a run. And uh, Roddy Piper, if you know, yeah. that, that they started in Atlanta, if somehow it had been a deal where Lawler was a heel there, but Piper was a was a was a heel in Memphis, and they were, you know, can, can you imagine like uh, Piper and. Uh, Hart and Andy Kaufman all together. I mean, oh, just God. but I I was driving 20 miles each way back and forth across to New Albany, Indiana to Weasel Dooley's house to see the fucking Georgia TVs with promising. They were milking us is what they were doing. Lawler and Piper, Lawler and Piper. We're getting the promos. We're getting the promos. And then right before the match, I, the, the, the story that I heard in the business at the time was Piper basically said, I'd rather go to Pensacola and make thousand dollars a week where I can do all the shit I want to do all day. Right. <laughs> and, and he was gone. Yeah. Cause only was not of that mindset. Well, and I think, I think he and Tommy Rich had trouble finding an arena in Chattanooga. Somehow, and they they were like two hours late to a to a. I think that's what sparked it, maybe. And then Piper well, was actually, like, "Ah." Tommy Rich did not have a good sense of geography because he and Jimmy <laughs> Del Rey were riding together one night to Freedom Hall in Johnson City for a Smoky Mountain wrestling show, and they they knew where the building was. No, that's what it, they knew where the building was, but their car broke down right in front of O'Charlie's. 
<laughs> and it was it was it was, was two it happy hours. Hour? <laughs> it was two, it certainly was, and it was two hours before they could get to the building from the Oh Charlie's, uh, three quarters of a mile away from the arena. So, <laughs> yeah, but, you know, and yes. I, I, miss, I mentioned earlier that uh, the main, the reason Eddie Gilbert was shooting that night, uh, uh, the first Jarrett card at the Coliseum, uh, back in '77, was because um, uh, Shields was shooting the card on 16 millimeter. Now. Uh, he doesn't know what happened to that. I asked, I said, please tell me you still have, you know, the entire card and pristine. Oh God. Uh, now. Along with a unicorn. But it's never cleared me exactly what you have stashed away there at uh, well, no, Castle what, Cornette. What, what it was, was somehow or another, uh, some of the 16 millimeter films from the Tennessee territory, whether Nick's end or Jarrett's end, that were shown on television at the time that they were done ended up in the collection of uh, Pedro Martinez, Ron Martinez's, uh, Ron Martinez was Pedro Martinez's son, the Buffalo promoter, Pedro Martinez. His son, Ron, started PM Film and Tape and assembled in the 80s a bunch of uh, video and, and a lot of the stuff that's on the Wrestling Gold series. Uh, that Kit Parker licensed from Ron Martinez, etc. But whatever reason, some but not all of those films ended up in his collection, and he had sent me his catalog in 1988-ish of what he had, and he also mentioned, well, I got a bunch of these old Tennessee wrestling films, but we've never converted those. I said, well, that's the ones I want. That's the shit that, that's what I'm interested in. So I was the guinea pig, and he converted over to tape for me all of those arena films and then there was some that i didn't get from him because we lost touch and contact and they'd moved and blah 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 but those have eventually surfaced somehow mm -hmm. uh but that's what what still exists if it wasn't if it was a tennessee wrestling film and it was not in that group to my knowledge it does not still exist okay I was just wondering because it was never clear to me exactly what what you have stashed away there. Uh, well, I've got a, I've got a bunch of videotape also that probably you know at the time remember the early tape traders it was like two or three or four people might get it if you're really that fucking interested and it's that fucking deep right. Yeah. But uh, but no nothing nothing that you would go oh my god this I've wanted to see this for fifty years not okay. just much out there at this point. All right, so you know, there's not there's not like a holy grail that you've let you. No, uh, my, and, and but, but wouldn't you know who won the pony? I holy grailed the 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 mid Atlantic films, right? Yeah. If, if that would have been instead of being in Ron Martinez's collection, people associated with wrestling that would one day it would come to light. That shit would have been in the fucking Charlotte landfill if I'd have been a day <laughs> later. So I kind of I, I at least feel proud of myself for that, even though I was not able to save the. The, the the entire Tennessee wrestling catalog. I did my best though. All right, all right. Well, let, let's go back. And a lot, you know, we made... stuff, a lot of the '80s Mid South Coliseum matches that that are still around, and I probably have some of those that people haven't seen. It's nothing earth shaking, but I used to take my VCR over to Jarrett's house when Randy West was doing the editing, and I'd I'd hook it up to one of the three quarter machines, <laughs> and I'd, I'd roll all that stuff off for myself before they taped over it in six weeks. Yeah, nice. Uh, that's uh yeah jerry Jarrett to this day says that that's the if he could go back and change one thing about his career yeah. it would have been to save all that stuff in pristine condition uh because he would have he would have doubled his money oh good lord even better than that at this point 
Because oh, now that there's no actual good wrestling out there and we have to go to the old stuff to watch shit, he could uh, find a whole new audience. So do you do you remember getting the call to, to go to Memphis in August of 82 to shoot the Lawler uh, flare angle? Uh, well, he, didn't, he just told me the previous week at the gardens or whenever the previous time I saw him was, he said, Flair's going to be at TV. Oh, I'll be there. Uh, and then, it, was, it wasn't and then, even really a request. It was like he tips me off. <laughs> <laughs> and it was my girlfriend's birthday the day before Friday, the 13th. Um, so I had to take her, go over to Southern Indiana, take her to the dinner, the movies, whatever the fuck, drop her back off at her house and then drive to Memphis to get in at six o'clock in the morning where I got like two hours of sleep and then went over to the TV studio to shoot the match. And then after the match is over with, I'm shooting the rest of the show. And that's when Jarrett taps me on the shoulder says, can you, oh shit, I've got heat. And he pitches me the idea of coming back the next week with a suit and managing. So now I've, I've, I've had two hours of sleep in the previous fucking <laughs> 48 hours or whatever. And, I, and now all of a sudden, not only have I just shot this Lawler and flare match, but I've been invited to, to, uh, join the company. Which, which was a fantastic angle to see to see unfold. Um, and I guess I'm assuming that's the first time you saw Ric Flair live. Uh, uh, no, I had seen Flair in Cincinnati at the Gardens. Oh, okay. we, we used to go up to see the um, the Mid Atlantic shows there when they started running in '81. As a matter of fact, oh, that okay. that was one down downturn of getting in the business in Memphis. I couldn't go to see those matches in Cincinnati anymore. <laughs> <laughs> see <laughs> Piper and Snuka and Flair and fucking Mulligan and goddamn it, it, that was insane. And they were and doing huge business at that point. And and what did you think? Because I'm assuming that you uh, always like Memphis wrestling was was on a pedestal as far as you were concerned. And if you know you watched WWF programming from the time and compare, I mean, I, Memphis was just uh, so much better. So much maybe not the best wrestling show per se, but definitely the most entertaining show. I think it's safe to say, uh, especially when you compare it to WWF and Vern Gagne's AWA TV. But Mid Atlantic. I mean, those shows, uh, did, did they open your eyes to kind of a, uh, maybe a different style? Uh, uh, and, well, yeah, and, and well, and also I was, even before they got the Mid-Atlantic TV on in Cincinnati, um, I was able to start getting the, you know, tapes because of my, starting in 1980 or so, I was seeing not everything, but a lot of stuff from pretty much every territory. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and then of course and it was hard to watch the the Mid Atlantic show because they got a great time slot Channel Five like Saturday morning at at you know eleven or whatever right before the Louisville show but I had to had to turn the antenna and hope and pray for good weather and then look through the snow it was, it was <laughs> tough I could listen to it better than I could watch it yeah that's really like with me with the with the Jackson uh, Tennessee show yes uh, I I could kind of get Channel Seven it was and it was the the month the show the matches from uh, the previous Monday night at the Coliseum which was just tremendous you know when you could get it I think I got I think the first match that ever came in like very crystal clear was like Lawler and Ho Lawler and Hulk uh, Terry Boulder uh, against Gorgeous George Jr. and Mongolian Stomper in a cage oh uh, my God yeah. And well, and, and that's actually Danny Davis, uh, lived in Jackson for a while during that period. He used to tape the Jackson show for me. Just hand me a VHS with six of them or whatever. But any, the point being, where was I going with what I was going with? <laughs> um, no, the mid Atlantic shows, 
the main event, you could tell overall the quality of the talent. The guys were smoother workers, probably at the top of the card. They put it was a different style. It wasn't so much of a fight and more of the high level pro wrestling work that you would see from guys like Flair and Valentine and Snuka and Piper or whatever the fuck. Um, and, and the promos were sometimes as good, but different. There was no Lawler that stood out. There was more of a pack in the Carolinas of there. There's like eight stars. Wow. Uh, and then their preliminary matches, cause they were running another town that night. So, you know, the first three matches would be, you know, goddamn Juan Humberto against whoever the fuck. Um, and that was a little dreary. So overall, the garden shows or the Memphis shows, house shows moved a little quicker all the way around, but it was just, it was two different styles Yeah, and, and really you could enjoy both of them and they were, and they were two different things. Right. Right. Um, and what about, uh, okay. So you, I'm sure you didn't have to think about it much, but I guess you did have, you had talked with your mom about because this was going to change whether or not she could actually go to the matches in Louisville. Was that right? Oh, yeah. Well, well and that, that wasn't the, the most uppermost concern in, in Jerry J. He said, ask your mom if she would mind being involved in this way. <laughs> um, you know, in, in terms of right. being referenced, she didn't have to appear or do anything. I don't think it was in Jared's mind that she gave that big of a shit about not being able to go back to the matches, but just did she want to be slandered as this evil <laughs> rich woman all over television across the, you know, uh, but she had no problem with it. And basically he said, well, you know, let me know if, if uh, everything's okay and be here next week with a suit. I'm like, oh shit, I got to buy a suit too. Yeah. Uh, and I, and I, I know you've kind of downplayed uh, how good those those first interviews were, but it was very unique in that you didn't come in as a, as a heel man. You wanted to be kind of like the babyface manager, which made sense because you had been a photographer. You'd been around the business. You, you know, knew the boys. Uh, never, never were allowed in the locker room, I believe, up until the, the day you started. Yeah, uh, no, nobody was. But, well, but see, but that was the thing. Why would I just suddenly come out and go, yeah, I'm going to fucking fuck all you fucking people in the fucking ass. I I came out and, and specifically said, and, and it, it, once again, Jerry told me, he said, you know, he gave me a few parameters on it. He said, you don't want to be like Jimmy Hart. You want to manage the the big stars like Jerry Lawler and Bill Dundee and the good guys that everybody likes. Cause you know, you want to be a, it didn't say asshole like Jimmy Hart and just gave me a few guidance on uh, a little guidance on what my mindset would be. And yes, I come out there because I'm, if I'm some rich kid, Mm-hmm. that whose mother has bought him everything. And I've suddenly decided I'm, I'm going to get into wrestling. Like I'm right after I'm a double knot spy. Right. And, and, and if I'm that clueless, then I wouldn't understand why that the top stars in the business would never sign with me in a million years, like Jerry Lawler and Bill Dundee. And when they, when they did and, and kind of fucking pissed me off and, and made fun of me, that gave me a reason to find somebody that, that wasn't quite so proud that they'd let me manage them for money in order to kick the shit out of these guys that had pissed me off and embarrassed me. Right. And it was a perfect reason. And then, so then I start going to the after, well, and Dutch was <laughs> the best one was Dutch because Lawler and Dundee blew me off. And then Dutch, <laughs> he gets me for a week because he said, unlike those other two, I wouldn't above taking you for a ride for some money. And I come out, but I've got these, I've got these receipts for tobacco and liquor and, and all the food he's eating, Lance. Oh my God. Well, and at first you were paired with, with Sherry Martell after. <laughs> 
after Lawler and Dundee turned you down. And uh, and that was about a two week deal, right? Or- no, that, that was actually well, no, it was one day. Oh, it was okay. Um, but, well, I, I showed up at TV and they said, well, you're going to be managing tag team champions today. I said, what? <laughs> the ladies, United <laughs> States tag team champions. And, and it turned out to be just Sherry because Leilani Kai was sick that morning. They, they claim she had the flu. I don't know. They're in Memphis out the night before. Who knows what happened? I love Leilani Kai. But anyway, um, so I managed Sherry in a single match. And then that night at the Cook Convention Center, it was Leilani and Sherry against velvet mcintyre and oh my gosh well read my book folks but anyway um and and we went over they made up the ladies united states tag team championship it was just something for me to do that day because they already had the girls in the territory Uh and they probably figured well let's put him out there once because the next week it was going to be in the coliseum managing dutch against lawler in the main event (laughs) they probably figured let's put him out there once before we do that (laughs) he shits himself or fucks this up royally which is pretty much what i did the first time that i I went out there because and the first time i went out there you know i i turned i was a referee and the whole deal was that you know i'd had enough of lawler pushing me around all that but frank morale had been knocked senseless and and i ran out there and i kicked lawler in the back of the head and lawler's like telling me he's like he's like no scott you know lay it in there now you know so man i did I, I stomped him, man. I, but man, I, I I was about I was about to have a heart attack backstage. I was so nervous, Jesus. Uh, I mean, because this has been this has been laid on me about thirty minutes in advance. Uh, thanks to thanks to Eddie Gilbert. Oh, I, 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 that was a actually pretty good notice for sometimes what happens in Memphis. No, oh, no doubt, no doubt. That, and then I, and then and then I was paired with Tory Graham, which meant a lot to me because oh. I I was there for the uh, for the Lawler return match. The that that was the largest crowd I've ever seen at the Coliseum. I mean, people literally were sitting in the aisles in the cheap seats. Uh, I don't know how they squeezed that many people in there, but. Uh, but to go, you know, to to have that special memory as a kid, Lala rises up through the stage and uh, just the the that was the loudest pop I've ever heard uh, by far. Uh, and the Dream Machine, you know, who's cutting these great promos and for a big guy, he could bounce, he could move, he could, you know, take these great bumps. Uh, and and to manage Troy Graham in 1994, it was it was such a huge thrill because I, I just think he's one of the all time great promo guys who never got really known on a national level. Mostly because he just didn't want to leave the South. Because yeah. I think Valiant <laughs> tried to bring him in as a as a cousin or something like that at, at one point. Yeah, in the Carolinas. But Dream wouldn't leave the territory when he left the territory. He still <laughs> lived in Memphis. He just wait till they book him again. <laughs> it, 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 oh, I love Troy. He he was he was insane. But you were right. It was so and that's another thing. I think the reason why that clicked, it was so fresh and different because he worked differently and he was a different guy, but he, he cut promos like a top guy. So he became a top guy. And even though they could beat him like a drum, you know, from that Lawler coming back with such big news and that sellout and the business they did for months after that with everybody. But even when they brought Valiant back or they brought Idol in or they brought Hogan in or Crusher Blackwell or the Funks or whatever, Dream was the guy that they kept in the spot because he could be in Nashville when the Flyons weren't going to be there or he or in Jonesboro or the spot shows or you could fill in a week with him in Louisville when you couldn't get the name, you know, guys. He was he was always good and he he ran off of that thing all year. 
Yeah, he was like the first lieutenant of the first family, really. He, you know, he was the oh, one boy, who... You know, you know why poor Jimmy was in such a mess then? <laughs> if Toy was a lieutenant, he would have probably been... He would have been out in a foxhole somewhere reading a porn mag instead of <laughs> on duty. And then, he, and then he had that great baby face run uh, with, with, uh, with Dundee on top. So, yeah, he was... Uh, man, I... I I can't think enough of that guy. If, if I correct me if I'm wrong, is he one of the ones who first suggested that once you broke in, he's like, he's Jimmy, I could see you being a booker one day. Yes. Him and Bobby Fulton. And yeah. I, if, no, I wasn't even in the bit when they were riding with me in the car, when I was taking pictures. Oh, okay. And, and they were like, you're going to be a book. I'm like, what the f you're insane. Right. And of course <laughs> he was insane. Both of them were, but they were, they were still right. Um, but yeah, I used to give uh, Troy rides back from, from memphis because he lived in memphis and i lived in louisville whether i'd come down and shoot pictures or then later on when i started managing i still lived here so he wanted to stay up all night and just get to louisville and sleep the next day and i wanted to get home so we, i would drive him he'd leave his his car same one he always had at the uh at the shoney's there on sycamore view in summer or whatever the yeah. fuck and, and he'd get yeah. in the car with me and i'd bring him to louisville and then he'd hook up with the other guys go to evansville and and on from there uh, I mean, maybe he would ravage that Sony's all-you-can-eat shrimp buffet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was born in the heat of the desert. My mama died giving me life, the pride and the love of a father blamed for the loss of his wife. You understand what I'm saying? Oh, my gosh. Say, how long is this fucking program? <laughs> here. How long have we been talking? Well... <laughs> Well, we we always time it at around nine. We went ninety minutes. <laughs> you went ninety before I said, "What the fuck?" It's like what time when we did promos at Crockett's office on Wednesdays in Charlotte, right? You get there at nine o'clock every Wednesday, and and that's when the day they gave out the checks, and you got lunch from Price's Chicken Coop, Klondike Bill bringing a big cardboard box full of fucking chicken, which is where all the bones came from in the Mid Atlantic Films boxes. But anyway, I digress. But you'd be there till about three or four o'clock that afternoon, six seven hours shooting all the local promos. And God damn, it was a long day. And Gene Anderson was the one who who ran everything. Okay, Philly, Flair, Horseman, Cornet, everything. You did the three minute spot, right? Well, if I, toward the end of the day, they do like the Salisbury, Maryland or whatever show where you didn't have anything to plug. It'd just be a three-minute generic interview about nothing. Just talk about how great you are or how great your men are. So they'd always give those to me. So I'm up there with Shivani, and Shivani's got this fucking deal where he's wearing a suit and tie. He's wearing the jacket and the tie and the shirt, and he's got fucking shorts and flip-flops on because they never widened out that far. So I'm, he's holding the microphone. And I see Gene behind the desk and Jackie Crockett's the cameraman and the red light goes on and Tony Schiavone says, and ladies and gentlemen, here's Jim Cornette. And he just, that's all the promo. So I, okay, I got to do two minutes, 50 seconds, right? I start talking and I'm into it pretty good. And all of a sudden they've, they've got a close up on me, which it's a, you know, once again, a safe shot. And then Shivani nudges me like it. The microphone, take the microphone. I feel he's got to scratch his balls or something. He doesn't want to blow this. So I take the microphone and he walks away from me to the side. I can't see what he's doing. And I'm still cutting the promo. <laughs> and then I noticed that Gene Anderson has walked away from the podium and he's over on the right-hand side doing something. I feel, well, fuck, I'm not going to blow this just because Gene's left. And then I look down at the clock because we have a clock that faced us and he would hit the, the button on the clock. 
every time the promo would start, it would count backwards. So from 258, it would count backwards to 54321. Right. So you know when to end. The clock is is frozen. It's not running. And I think, well, what the fuck was this? Somebody got got this uh, it, it, where they're recording this. They know what time we started on the time code. So somebody's going to, Jackie Crockett will give me a fucking cue here shortly. <laughs> and then Jackie walks out from behind the fucking camera and is just standing there scratching his balls. And I'm, they were ribbing me. I went like four and a half fucking <laughs> Because I didn't want to screw anything up, and I didn't want to have to do it over. And finally, my last line was, "What do you want from me?" <laughs> and here, history here history repeats because itself, nobody behind it, nobody's. I don't know how long the fucking thing's been going. So you've been counting on Brian Last to step in and let you know in your hour that you committed to is up. <laughs> but he and I talk, he and I spoke beforehand, and he's like, "You know what? He's committed to an hour, but just 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 just, just keep him talking." <laughs> not exactly how i said it <laughs> it was something it was something along those lines well, I'd, I'd be glad to be here all day but i do i do have cornet's collectibles business to uh to take care of for the fine folks out there but i've enjoyed being on this program under false pretenses and if i liked you a little bit more i'd probably do it again no i think you'll be back <laughs> they always come back. but stay they tuned next week for uptown karen here on yes the show. <laughs> Actually, there's Brian. There's still a chance that she may call back. So, but anyway, we we can we can clean that up later. If, if. Not to tell more Cora Combs sex stories. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I think you're a little jealous. Actually, do you, you realize? Actually, do you realize that? I, I while I lived in Nashville, I saw it in the paper. One night, a man broke into Cora Combs's bedroom window, and she yelled "rape," and he yelled "no." <laughs> Oh, <laughs> that's that, that, you know, as far as rape jokes go, that that's one of the that's, better. Ones. That's one of the better. Ones. Let's all, no. let's all pray that Dave Brown's not listening this week. Oh, Lordy. Do you know, Lordy. I have it on good authority that it, in, in the late nineties, about the same time of your incident, they put Cora Combs's picture in the brushy mountain state penitentiary to cure the sex offenders. Do you <laughs> <laughs> well, this this interview has really taken a <laughs> turn for the worst. Oh, here we go again. Now I really hope Dave's not listening. <laughs> oh gosh, just just when I just when I finally win back Dave back over to my good graces, uh, it all goes to hell. Well, I uh, don't know what to tell you. Just uh, <laughs> you, you shall rue this day. But God. <laughs> 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 well, I, I think that about wraps this segment up. <laughs> well, I want to thank you very much for setting my fucking uh, goddamn career back uh, even farther than I could set it back, despite my my trying. Hey, ha happy to do it. <laughs> and it's not a toaster. <laughs> uh oh, stop mocking me! All right, this is never, never going to end. It never is. It will never be over until your body is broken and bleeding. It will never be over. Uh, so we went 90 minutes. So next time we're going to have to come back with like a two-hour time limit. But no, we went 90 and we're just going to have to do it right the first day, and we won't have to go through all this. All right. Well, gentlemen, I appreciate uh, very much being a part of your program. Uh, should I hang up on you, or will you do the same for me? Uh, you hang up on us. Okay. Very good. I will, I'll see you in the funny papers. <laughs> see you, Jim.
Well, Brian, they say that you should never truly meet your heroes. And I think that that was proven here today because uh, Jim Cornette came on and just Boy, just uh, actually, I'm just I'm just kidding. He was fantastic. And I consider it an honor to be insulted by the master himself repeatedly, actually, uh, throughout the entire uh, podcast. Well, I'm fairly certain that I could say that Mr. Cornett will be back on Kentucky Fried Wrestling in the near future. Well, yes, there's plenty of material that he's yet to uncover about me that he can expose and belittle. <laughs> um I remember the first time that uh, the Gemini worked together. I well worked together. I was I was refereeing. Uh, I was nameless, faceless referee, and Jim Cornette was like, uh, and I was with uh, Jerry Lynn and Cody Michaels against the uh, heel fabulous ones. And Cornette goes, "Boy, the women around here are st- have to be starved for real men, you know? Because look at this: you got two cabbage patch dolls and a grown-up beaver cleaver in the ring." <laughs> that was the very first time I was insulted by Jim, and uh, here we are, all, all these years later. But uh, no, that was fantastic, and it was uh, man, I just love hearing uh, Jim's point of view and his uh, his memories of Memphis because they uh, they certainly ring true to me, and I and I could listen to Jim talk all day long about professional wrestling. Well, that about does it. I uh, just want to remind you that Kentucky Fried Wrestling is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. I'm your host Scott Bowden. You can follow me on Twitter at Trav Scott Bowden or on Facebook at Kentucky Fried Wrestling, and that's R A S S L I N. You can follow me on Twitter at Great Brian Last. You can follow the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network on Twitter at Super Podcasts, and you can follow Arcadian Vanguard on Facebook at facebook.com slash Arcadian Vanguard. For Brian Last, this is Scott Bowden. We'll see you next week on Kentucky Fried Wrestling. The announcers on this program are selected and paid by parties other than this station, namely the promoters of Championship Wrestling.